If you can have your Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 23 this morning um, or your smartphone. And we are back in uh, the book of Luke. We'll be looking at verses 44 to 49. My father passed away last fall and um, my dad and I had a, I would say, a distant relationship. I loved him. I knew he loved me. Um, he was never harsh, um, wasn't verbally abusive like I know some people's stories are, but um, my dad worked a lot when I was growing up. He was an agricultural business, and from January to June, he would work. It wasn't unusual anyway for him to work 60 to 75 hours a week, and that kind of takes a lot of time away from family. And then the second half of the year, he was involved, uh, extensively involved in church and some other things as well. So I didn't get to spend much time with my dad. Um, and that always kind of stung. And about a year after I was married, uh, still hoping and trying to, to bring this relationship uh, closer, I, I said to him one day, I said, how about if you and I get away for a weekend, just, we'll just take two days and um, go away. I, I didn't really have a plan of what we would do. My dad didn't have any hobbies, um, didn't really have any pastimes. He just worked, worked, worked. And, uh, but I, <laughs> I figured I'll plan, if he says yes, I'll plan it then because I was really kind of expecting he'd say no. Uh, we had, growing up, I, we had three vacations uh, <clears throat> all the years I was growing up that I remember. So sure enough, he said, well, he said, uh, if I have any time off, he said, I like to spend it with mother. Now, what was ironic about that is my mother um, had a sour taste in her mouth all the years of their marriage because dad was hardly ever home. And so uh, I realized at that moment, this is never going to change. What I long for, what I desire to have is never going to come to fruition. About 10 years after that, I decided I'm going to uh, share my heart with my dad. And so I wrote him a letter and I included it in a Father's Day card that year. So this was back in snail mail days, didn't have email. So I waited a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks after I'd sent that letter, I still hadn't heard anything from him. And I'm thinking, you know, if, if I wrote a letter like that to my son, I'd get on the phone and say, hey, can we talk? And so one day, Dad was at our house for Sunday lunch. I don't know where my mother was away. It was just him. And we were down in the basement looking at a project I was working on. And I very casually said, so did you get my letter? And he smiled kind of sheepishly and said, yeah. And that was it. Didn't help me out at all. So I said, well, what'd you think? And he said, well... He said, uh, that's in the past, nothing I can really do, do about it now. And uh, my heart sunk, you know. I, it would have just been, if I could have just heard him say, you're right, I wish it would have been different. I'm sorry it wasn't. That would have been all I needed to hear. Now, I'll tell you that story, uh, um, maybe to make you feel good about your uh, relationship or maybe to make you feel even worse about your relationship with your father. But uh, on the one hand, uh, it was my own experience and I was sad about it. On the other hand, 
my experience is compared to some men and their fathers is nothing. Mine was distant. Some's dysfunctional. Um, some they know of an abusive dad or a verbally abusive dad or a dad whose expectations were so high that they could never, never meet them. I want you to think about a father whose offspring always disappointed him but not because his expectations were too high. And talk about a, a holy God and an unholy people. And the unholy people could never solve the rift. They could never bridge the chasm, ever. And so someone had to. Luke chapter 23, beginning of verse 44. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. <clears throat> the light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. And then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, that our hearts would overflow with gratitude for what Jesus did for us. And pray in his name. Amen. When one life ended on that day, many lives began or would begin. There's a couple of things to think about before we dive into just the, the death itself. First of all, to remember that just like his birth, Jesus' death was timed perfectly. Galatians 4.4 4 says that Jesus came and was born of a woman at just the right time or in the fullness of time. And then in John 7, verse 6, when Jesus' brothers were trying to push him to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths so he could reveal himself and, and do all his miracles and impress them and become famous, Jesus said, well, my time's not yet come. There, there's, a, there's a time, a precise time in history where I'm going to die. And why was that? Because this was the Father's perfect plan. When the early church was praying in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, they, they, were he was, they were praying to God about the Gentiles and about the Jews who had conspired against Jesus and put him to death. And they said, this is exactly what you had planned ahead of time. And we go way back to Genesis chapter 3. And God, in a very crude form, in a very simplistic form, predicted the gospel was going to come. In the midst of the judgment against the women and judgment against the men and the judgment against Satan, he said in 3.15, he said, Satan, there's going to be a, a person that's going to show up one day who's the offspring of this woman and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. You're going to injure him, but he's going to destroy you. John tells us in his first epistle that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Came to destroy the works of the devil of the devil. And so Jesus, after he's undergone all this 
whip, the whipping and the torture at the hands of the Roman soldiers led through the streets of Jerusalem, uh, trailing a, a trail of blood behind him, gets, to, uh, gets outside the city to the hill of the skull, and they stretch Jesus out on this cross, arms like this, driving spikes through his wrists, bending his knees and driving spikes through his doubled up feet and then they drop the cross into that hole they had prepared when that happens all of Jesus weight is now hanging on these three nails and the pain that was all through his body before he got in the cross is now excruciating companion breathing becomes labored and you think about what is taking place in his body and Luke tells us about something that's taking place outside of his body. That there, were, there was a moment that the elements themselves began to grieve and say this is not right. And so at noontime, after he's been on the cross a little bit, everything goes black. And you might think that it's just a cloud cover. The, the sun's no longer shining because clouds are in front of it. And yet this text kind of goes to pains to, to make it sound differently. The light from the sun was gone. And it's interesting. Some people have thought this is a solar eclipse. Now, I'm no astronomer, but the astronomers tell, tell us that's not possible. Because Jesus was crucified over the Passover. The Passover takes place at full moon. And at full moon, the orbits of the earth and the orbit of the moon around the earth do not line up. To, it's an impossibility to have a solar eclipse during full moon. Sounds like there's something else going on here. And let me just take you back to Matthew chapter 27 for a minute to see what else was going on that Luke doesn't tell us about. Verse uh, 51. In the middle of verse 51, the earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened, and the bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. Wow. So there's, we know earthquakes are, that's God's, he's running the show when it comes to earthquakes. And certainly when people are being raised from the dead, he's running that show as well. It sounds like all kinds of supernatural things taking place and, and, and the natural world, the inanimate world, is responding to this incredible injustice, the greatest injustice that ever took place. Sun goes dark. Earth explodes. Dead people come up out of the dead. Remember what happened when Jesus came into Jerusalem and the people were acclaiming him the week before he died and they were putting palm branches on the streets and, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And his critics say, tell these people to be quiet. And Jesus said, well, if I do, even the rocks are going to cry out in praise and adoration. You can silence people, but you cannot silence all of creation to praise this one. And then verse 46, Jesus cries out with his final words, I've entrust my spirit into your hands but the most fascinating piece of this text to me is what Luke says happened right before Jesus died and Matthew and Mark say happened as Jesus died and suddenly 
the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. So a half mile or a mile away in the heart of Jerusalem at the temple, there's this massive curtain that hangs between the two main parts of the temple, the most holy place and the holy place or the holy of holies. Now this is not like a drapery in your living room. You know, you can kind of hang it over one arm. This thing was three stories high and just as wide. And it was almost an inch thick, tightly woven, beautiful embroidery and purple and blue and red thread on the face of it. And somehow that thing tore, not from the bottom up, but from the top down. So if, if a person tore it, if this was vandalism, they had to get a pretty high ladder to get up there and start tearing it from top to bottom. And then can you imagine trying to tear something that's almost an inch thick, tightly woven? What's going on here? It's interesting. According to some ancient Jewish texts, there were some strange happenings at the temple right around this time. But if it was vandalism, no one was ever arrested. If it was vandalism, no one was ever executed. And you could be executed for religious vandalism. You imagine today if someone went into the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem, which is, is technically it's Israel's property, but it's overseen by the Jordanian government. 121 stained glass windows in that mosque. You imagine if some non-Muslim went into that mosque and began to destroy those windows. Nobody ever pays for what happened in the temple that day. Now, why was that curtain there? Just to keep the sun out? This place back here, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, nobody went in there except one man. Nobody else was allowed to go in there. In the holy place out here where there was some furniture that needed to be tended to, if you were a Levite, you could go in there. If you were a priest, you could go in there. But no one went back behind this curtain except the high priest of Israel. And he only was allowed to go back there one day out of the year. Jewish year was 360 days, so that meant 359 days of the year he wasn't allowed back there or he would die because this was the place where God lived this was the place where the ark dwelt. And the ark was covered with the mercy seat and there were these angels with their wings bent over the mercy seat. When they first put the ark in the tabernacle there, the, the place filled with smoke because God was signaling that he was going to live there, that he was going to be the God of the Israelites and the Israelites were his people. But it was a sacred place because of that and nobody went in there you had to be the high priest and all of a sudden think about the implications of this all of a sudden when Jesus dies access Jesus took what was a wall and punched a door in it and it's a door that now stands open and the writers of the New Testament got it. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning verse 19. And 
And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the what? Blood of Jesus. Read that with me. We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. What's the most holy place? The holy of holies. Symbolically. But the literal place is the presence of God. We can enter into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. Because the curtain has been torn. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Go back a chapter. Verse 28. I'm sorry, verse 26. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And so the symbolism of that moment when Jesus died and the curtain tore could not be missed. One life ended, and as a result, many lives can begin. And it's interesting, there are a couple of groups of people that Luke describes watching this crucifixion. The crowd goes home. They're despondent. It says they went home, they were full of sorrow. And it says that the friends and supporters were still, they were there watching, and it doesn't describe their emotional state. It simply says that they were watching. And you read the other gospel writers' accounts, they just say they're watching. And you wonder, well, what are they thinking? We know that they didn't believe that Jesus is going to come back to the de- from the dead, so they're not watching to see if he suddenly comes down off the cross. Pastor Kyle's going to preach next week about the conversation the resurrected Jesus had with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they were all blue because they were telling Jesus, you know, this guy, they didn't recognize him. They said, this guy, you know, we we thought he was going to save all Israel. Meaning, he's dead now, so he can't save us now. Why? What's going through their minds? I think what's going through their minds is they're confused. The crowd's despondent. They're sad to see this popular preacher go. But the supporters and friends are confused. Okay, we heard all this teaching. We saw that he's a man clearly ordained by God. He did incredible miracles. He had to be sent by God. And now he's, now he's dying, dead, confused. But then we flip to the least likely person in the crowd to be affected by Jesus dying. And what does it say about him? Verse 47. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he packed up his tools and he went home. That's not what it says. He worshiped God? Are you kidding me? This is a pagan God who worships Greek or Roman gods if he worships any. We've talked before about Roman soldiers were not the nicest of people and they were not the most religious of people. He's overseeing the execution, which means he was a common executioner, common laborer in many of these for many, many occasions. He probably 
oversaw crucifixions and other executions hundreds of times, perhaps even thousands of times. Saw men die left and right, saw plenty of blood, and yet this one brings him to say, it brings him to be described as worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent, or as the footnote says, righteous. He's not just innocent of a crime, He's righteous through and through. It's his character. It's who he is. It's who he is day in and day out, not just that he was innocent of a particular charge. Surely this man was righteous. In fact, if you flip back to Mark's account of this, he says in chapter 15, verse 39, when the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the Son of God. Crowds despondent, friends, soldiers, and supporters, I'm sorry, were confused. A soldier was, could he possibly have been saved? There are some commentators who argue that. I kind of doubt it. At least not on that day, but I suspect that he might have come to Christ. It sounds like God was opening his heart. But still, when you, you think about all the crowd and all the soldiers arriving with a bloodied up dying Jesus arriving at Calvary at the hill of the skull this is the least likely candidate to be affected by Jesus death and yet here he is saying surely this this must be the son of God this picture to me turns so much religious thinking on its head say what do you mean Um, you would be amazed how many times I am introduced to someone not in a church setting but out in the community and they they have to add oh and by the way he's a pastor and I always think why do you need to do that you don't introduce somebody to somebody else normally and say oh and he's an electrician or he's a you know he's a carpenter or he's a why do you do that And many times people will say something like, oh, I better watch my language. And I just want to tell, and I just want to tell them, look, I have enough problems watching my own language. But there's this notion that I'm in the, one of uh, of the people where this happened in the last year said something like, um, I don't want you to get me in trouble with the big guy upstairs. And I'm thinking, you know, this idea that my behavior either gets me in good with God or gets me in trouble with God. It just goes out the window when we look again at Jesus dying on the cross and all that the New Testament says That has done for us. And whether, you know, it seems as if as Christians, we tend to fall into one or two camps. There was a time when I fell in this camp. And tragic to say, it wasn't as many years ago as I would like. Where I thought my goodness was amazing. And I thought God was impressed with me. And that may be you. You look, at, you look at how 
well you do this Christian thing compared to other people. And you kind of feel smug. I, I got it going on. Or you may be in the other end of the, closer to the other end of the spectrum where you look at yourself and you say, man, I'm just a train wreck. I just can't seem to get it together. I have this sin problem that just kind of haunts me all the time and, and I can't believe that God could love me or want me. And Jesus deals the death blow to both of those lies. Both of them. Let me have you look at Colossians 1.22. Colossians 1.22. Yet now, God has reconciled. Right? We know what reconciled means, right? We're estranged. People are apart. You know, my dad and I were never estranged. We just didn't have a close relationship. But he would have always said I was his son and I would always say he was my dad. So reconciled means to be brought, brought together with someone that you were totally estranged from. Yet now God has reconciled you. Last week we talked about being reconciled to other people, right? Ephesians 2, 14 to 16. This talks about being reconciled to God. He has reconciled you to himself through your excellent behavior. Some of you are shaking your heads. What's it say? Through what? Through the death of Christ. He's rec- God has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ. Or if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, there's still that step that you have to take to make this yours. Trust in Christ. You don't get the benefits of Christ until you put your faith in Christ. But once we have, we've been reconciled to himself. God reconciles us to himself through the death of Christ, not through our excellent behavior or our decent behavior or putting away those awful sins that we used to do. Now, I I realize that when we emphasize again and again and again that the gospel is, the grounds of the gospel is Christ's work and not ours. That can make us nervous because we say, well, are you open the door for antinomian living and we just live like hell and excuse it because after all, Jesus died for us. Well, the Bible takes care of that. First John 3 talks about how if we continue to practice sin and it's not that we Uh, He says we're either practicing sin or we've stopped sin, but rather we're living in sin and fine with it. We're not fighting sin. That's what he's talking about. That it's proof that we don't know Christ. But the bottom line is none of us gets reconciled to, to God apart from the death of Christ and only the death of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I think that's a good thing because I'm messed up at times. Mostly just Thursdays, but still messed up at times. Praise God that it depends on Jesus and what he's done and not on what I've done. Do you love that song we sang earlier this morning? He will hold me fast. (laughs) He will hold me fast for, for I'm a mess 
And if he doesn't hold me fast, I'm lost. Praise God. I wonder how many of you would say, I have, uh, I have some friends or acquaintances or even enemies that are the worst of the worst. And in your wildest dreams, you could not imagine that they could become a follower of Jesus. Remember the Roman soldier. And remember what the Roman soldier was watching, who he was watching. No one is beyond reach if that reconciliation with the Father depends on Jesus' death and not someone's character and not someone's performance. And for you and us who are believers, Jesus' death is a reminder and nobody gets kicked out for bad behavior. As we said, the Bible calls a spade a spade, calls a club a club, it calls a heart a heart and a diamond a diamond. And that is if you live like hell, that's your destiny. If you are fine with rebelling against Christ, then that prayer you prayed never took. It wasn't a real deal. But conversely, you don't get kicked out for your flaws. You don't get, you don't suddenly, you're, you're a son or a daughter of God here and then the next Thursday, you're not. I'm so grateful. And I hope you are too, if you know Christ. And if you don't know Christ, I hope this will be a clarion call to you. There's no one who is beyond the reach of the Savior. I want to close with Hebrews chapter 6, beginning verse 18. Well, I'll find it here eventually. So God has given both his promise and his oath. And these two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is as strong is a strong and trustworthy anchor, anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So when you sin this afternoon and God brings it to your mind, you can remember that Jesus has already arrived in the most holy place for you and he is going to bat with you against, for the Father again and again and again and again. And he will say, remember, I died for Keith. Remember, I died for Sam. Remember, I died for Barbara. Remember, remember, remember. I don't know about you, but when we talk about the passion of Christ, I want to make a beeline for the resurrection. It's just instinctive. I think we feel it, and that's a good instinct. But don't ever forget, it was the death that bought all these things. 
It was the resurrection that proved that he bought you, but it was in his dying. With his stripes, we are healed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Praise him for his death. Father, we love you and are grateful for the plan that sent Jesus. Not just to live and teach. Not just to heal and to exercise demons. But to fulfill the mission by dying and then being raised from the dead so that he could take people like me who just can't seem to get it right and to purchase our freedom once and for all. As the song we sang earlier this morning says, we are free indeed, not because of our perfect living, but because of his perfect death and end to a perfect life that preceded a perfect resurrection. Pray this in Jesus' name.